Hey all, Jordan Harbinger from The Art of Charm here. The Art of Charm podcast is packed with wisdom in the truest sense of the word, from how to become more productive to how to expand your personal and professional networks and manage relationships if you're in one. Productivity, persuasion, influence, time management, biohacking, and a whole lot more. Find The Art of Charm podcast in the Podcast One app or go to podcastone.com. The following program is a podcastone.com production. Brett Easton Ellis, and you're listening to the Brett Easton Ellis Podcast, and I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with the actress, Anne Heche. I now tweet infrequently, and I rarely use Twitter in the way it's supposed to be used. The Twitter controversies that I was involved with on an almost weekly basis years ago are a thing of the past, and if I miss the fact that the New York Times once called my Twitter stream brilliant in 2013... I'm now tired of it and can barely even be rallied to tweet that much at all. I announce new episodes of this podcast on Twitter, though a much more effective way to promote it is on my official Brett Easton Ellis Facebook page. But sometimes I'm struck by something and will tweet my thoughts. For example, HBO's 10-hour miniseries, The Night Of, seemed to me to be the final nail in the coffin of the theatrical experience for American film. Um, was one such recent tweet, pretty harmless. And a few weeks ago, I happened to see two movies back-to-back randomly for no other reason than they uh, happened to open the same Friday. And this inadvertent pairing of them, both gay-themed and about gay male desire, seemed instructive to me since Moonlight was written and directed by a straight man, Barry Jenkins, and King Cobra was written and directed by a gay man, Justin Kelly. I am not a believer that only gay people should direct gay-themed films, but in the case of a gay-themed film like Moonlight that is at heart about desire, the whole thing hinges on it, its third act is completely dependent on it, Uh, the hand job on the beach seals it, it seemed to be at times the strained, quote-unquote, progressive attempt of a straight artist to present what it's like to be a version of gay. The actual physical desire depicted visually in Moonlight is pretty much non-existent, and when there are flashes of it, it seemed to me so obviously not the work of a gay sensibility that it pretty much undermined the movie for me, a movie that has broken out of the crowd because it checks off every box in our current obsession with ideology, black, queer, homophobia, bullied, toxic masculinity, victim. It's a veritable rainbow for the New York Times cultural coverage and approval. And yet at times, its aesthetics save it from drowning in ideology. 
and not quite letting the queer black man at its center be presented as magical elf or saintly E.T. or baby panda, it moves into something slightly more original than only that. The aesthetics of King Cobra are not as fancy literary as Moonlight, and there's no way I'm going to be talking about it as a better movie. Yet its ideology is more interesting to me on an aesthetic emotional level because King Cobra just presents a true crime story where all the lead players just happen to be gay in the crazy real-life drama of it all. And it's not about bullying or victimization or marginalization or inclusivity, the things listeners of this podcast know I don't respond to in American movies. Of course, the boy in Moonlight got a losing ticket in the birth lottery and grows up poor, whereas the gay white dudes in King Cobra are distinctly middle class and therefore have more opportunities to squander their white privilege, which they do spectacularly. Moonlight loves Chiron's pain because without it, the movie wouldn't exist. It's a victim narrative. The teeming sexuality of King Cobra and the business of gay masculine desire, the filming of it, the buying and selling of it, the trademarking of it is what gives that movie a reason to exist. Gay men as superficial capitalists driven to crime seems to me in this moment a more progressive step in post-gay cinema than yet another anguished victim scenario. Your approval of Moonlight is supposed to make you feel virtuous. The tweet was going to suggest all of this in 140 characters and compare the two movies in the way they handle sexuality. One is upfront about its nudity and sex scenes, and the other is so chaste that it is borderline unrealistic. And that one is written and directed by a straight man, while the more explicit one is written and directed by a gay man with straight actors bringing their game on. And because Twitter has no context, I added that instead of having the conversation here on Twitter, there would be a discussion of the two movies on an upcoming podcast. And yet staring at the tweet before I posted it, complete with the posters for both films, oddly enough, almost identical in their design and um, blue and pink neon color patterns, I thought the tweet could be taken as racist, even though race had nothing to do with what I was thinking about. It was purely about how gay sex is represented aesthetically within the dream bubble of each movie. I was going to tweet something like, quote, I get the ideological importance of Moonlight, but King Cobra speaks to me more on an emotional, aesthetic level that I prefer, or something like that. The tweet was fine and innocuous, but putting up the two posters side by side revealed the black face of a male child compared to four white male faces, two younger men, two older men. The black face looks contemplative and sad. He's a victim, by the way. And the four white faces are cocky and determined. And that's what King Cobra is selling. The two younger men are shirtless and very handsome. And they are selling the come-on of the movie, which is sex. Because King Cobra is set in the world of gay porn and based on a true crime story from about a decade ago. My admiration and problem with both movies is not grounded in race or in ideology, but in aesthetics and my own personal taste. They are about tone and approach, and especially about how gay desire is presented by both movies, how one seems imbued with a gay sensibility while the other doesn't at all. And therein lies an aesthetic problem for me. I fixed the tweet and posted it and then forgot about it until a couple of days ago when I began making notes for this podcast. Mark Duplass on this podcast said that one of the reasons he's glad to be a new member of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences um, he was asked to join last year is so he can support a movie like Moonlight. 
And we were talking about this after I had my suspicions that making the academy even slightly more diverse isn't necessarily going to result in more nominations for diverse fare. It might, but it didn't work for the blockbuster when they opened up the Best Picture nominees from 5 to 10 in the hopes of the blockbusters getting nominated in order to boost ratings for the Oscar telecast. And unless the studios are actually making and promoting diverse Oscar fare, such as Denzel Washington's adaptation of the August Wilson play Fences, then it is doubtful that just because a movie has diverse casting in it means it will automatically be awarded by the Academy. Though it does look like Viola Davis in that movie has become a shoe in now to win Best Supporting Actress. I hadn't seen Moonlight when Mark, who is white and straight, was on the podcast, and the movie hadn't even been released yet, but there was a certain kind of voice on social media that was supporting the movie unequivocally without having seen it. People, in essence, saying they would definitely support this movie that was an example of queer black cinema weeks before the movie opened without knowing if the movie was any good or not. My one black friend, yes, my one black friend, I admit it, an entertainment lawyer in Hollywood, had not seen Moonlight yet either, and as a gay black man over dinner with me on the Thursday night before Moonlight opened on that Friday, his excitement at seeing what he saw as a representation of a queer black male in a big indie drama was palpable, and my friend doesn't usually give in to hyperbole. It reminded me of our heated debate over Ryan Coogler's 2013 movie Fruitvale Station, starring Michael B. Jordan, about the 2009 killing of Oscar Grant. Aesthetically, I thought it was clumsy and sentimental with heavy doses of amateurish irony and metaphor. And my friend wasn't that far from me when looking at Fruitvale Station from an aesthetic level. His taste, like mine, also runs to the big grand flourishes. And like me, he prefers genre movies. But he admitted to me that Fruitvale Station had shaken him to his core because he so rarely sees a young, handsome black man in movies trying to get by, trying to live his life without hassles, without the burden of being black. And that as a black man, he became susceptible to the movie. And in the final sequences of Fruitvale Station, when this black man is casually shot and killed, my friend was emotionally overwhelmed and the movie wrecked him. Not necessarily because it was so good or accomplished, but because as a black man, he related, even if he was from a different class than Oscar Grant, though not by much growing up. And he felt part of his story was being told as well. And this was way too rare for him. And um, he couldn't stop choking up that day after he saw the movie. As he was describing this reaction to me, I began to see the movie on his level through his eyes. The movie wasn't for me, but I now could understand how someone could be affected by it. And I am still moved by that conversation I had with my friend in the summer of 2013. And I thought about it a lot, even though it didn't change my aesthetics. Though, of course, there were people who rejected my aesthetics about Fruitvale Station and seemed to suggest I should like it no matter what, hinting, in fact, that I was a racist because I simply didn't like the aesthetics of the movie. But this is the age of Comrade Snowflake judging everyone so harshly if one resists and questions the threatening groupthink ideology of what their idea of progressive inclusivity is for all or else, meaning we can't make fun of our differences, everybody has to be the same, and you become a bad person if you don't like something, or you're automatically a racist or a sexist if you refuse to join the group. This is what happens to a culture when a culture doesn't care about art anymore. 
when did people start identifying with victims? And when did the victim's worldview become the lens in which we look at everything? Why is Moonlight so inordinately drawn to the character of Chiron, who over the course of the movie we see at three different stages in his young life, child, adolescent, and man, in three separate sections? Because Chiron, born poor and to a drug-addicted mother and absent father, throughout the movie is a victim. And here we are in American indie movie's favorite scenario, a victim with a capital V. From his very first scene, Chiron is a victim of bullying, a passive and spiritless boy, though we do get a snippet of him joyfully dancing in a scene at school. And I wish more of this Chiron had been center stage in the picture because then there would be something to lose, something at stake. Dramatically, and I'm talking within the realm of the movie and not what happens exactly in real life, if Chiron was openly different and an outsider who was also a fighter, had sass and attitude, that type of boy, instead of a mute and expressionless victim, this would have made his eventual victimization and his downfall and his withdrawal from life all the more devastating. We would have really felt the erasure of this boy's personality that bullying can cause. But Chiron is devoid of personality and individuality from minute one, which, of course, the movie wants to argue is the whole point. And how could he possibly be any of those things I mentioned if the world won't allow him? Well, conversely, that is why people explode and express themselves, often exactly because of a societal pressure. So he's mute and in pain. Why would you want this to be your point person in a movie, any movie? What is there to lose with this character? The movie's reason to exist is Chiron's pain, and you can either find this fun and enjoy movies like this, or you can patiently sit through it, occasionally admiring the artistry while enduring the boy's torture and unhappiness. Chiron is endlessly bullied. He's a gay martyr, and his mother is a crackhead, and she's kind of like a more cliched, less entertaining Monique. Moonlight is basically a thin boy's precious, complete with therapy session scenes, angry outbursts, tearful apologies, but without Lee Daniels' crude and invigorating showbiz vulgarity. We have been over this material so many times before for decades, just maybe without the woozy poetic stuff. The movie is at times a compendium of the most cliched scenes from Ghetto Cinema 101, as reimagined by Terrence Malick, perhaps. And yet, this approach mostly works, because the style mutes the cliches. Mom whacked out on drugs, begging her son to get her cash. Check. One friend is urged by the forces of toxic masculinity. Check. To beat up another friend in order to prove his toxic masculinity. And um, that scene makes no sense. It hasn't been prepared enough for us to understand the action of the bully. We don't know why Kevin would be persuaded by another student who we've never seen him with to commit this act of violence. But it doesn't matter because the movie wants to get to the beating of Chiron because this is when the movie is most excited by the victimization. As it is in the following scene with Chiron bloody and sobbing in the principal's office, an adult figure who offers him nothing. The movie keeps asking us to endure Chiron's pain, and yet why? There's nothing to love about Chiron. There's nothing at stake except his sadness and pain. He's not into anything. He's not into music or poetry or comic books. He's a cipher. And because of this, Moonlight likes those bullying scenes best, when the movie becomes active and not passive. And this is when Jenkins is strongest and most direct as a filmmaker. Watching Chiron victimized is the movie's reason for being. The movie is an elegy to pain, and it's bursting with one feel-bad moment after another, a litany of rejections. But suffering is what awards season loves most, as does the new audience enthralled to victimization. Sometimes Barry Jenkins doesn't make a big deal of things, and that's when the movie works best, as visual mosaic, casual and loose. 
Other times, the violins and cellos and oboes start swooning over the soundtrack, indicating to us a more aspirational, high-minded movie, and sometimes its earnestness is everywhere, and the movie is pristinely well-intentioned and wants you to admire its style and good taste. The movie is enthralled to pure victimhood when it badly needs more humor, more lightness, more sexual flash. The whole thing is dour and downbeat. And it doesn't seem to understand that these two styles can coexist. It doesn't understand that we'd be interested in Chiron if there was a fighter in him. But the movie believes in the noble suffering of victimhood and has little interest in making Chiron a stronger character. He's an enigma, and the movie is curiously fascinated with him. But why? Because he's a chaste, beautiful, sad-eyed teenage angel and victim. This chasteness reveals the heterosensibility at work in Moonlight in relation to how it portrays gay male desire. Not that Moonlight needed to go all Greg Rocky on us, but the movie has no sexual heat. And except for the bullying, it sidesteps scenes by aestheticizing them because they might be, what, too upsetting for the audience? As when Chiron's mother, Naomi Harris, screams at him as a little boy and calls him a faggot. But we don't hear the word. We lip-read it. And the film overstylizes the scene by playing it in slow motion, with music ladled over it, and the distance lessens the pain. It seems evasive, as if this primal gay boy versus mother scene is something the straight writer-director just couldn't comprehend. A group of schoolboys compare dick size, and the scene goes nowhere. But that's the movie style, elliptical and noncommittal. There are two dreams, one with teen Chiron, Ashton Sanders, watching that classmate Kevin having sex with a girl, but both of them are clothed. And oddly enough, there's a dream the man Chiron, Trevante Rhodes, has of the older Kevin, Andre Holland, standing outside a restaurant smoking a cigarette also clothed, just in close-up, that is so arousing to Chiron that it makes him ejaculate in his sleep. And for those of us who have had wet dreams, I have no idea why this happened to Chiron based on the dream itself. Now, Moonlight is only a movie, and Barry Jenkins can make any movie he wants, and he seems to have done it with little or no interference, and that's a good thing. But there seems to be missed opportunities here, as there are elsewhere in this very mild movie. Moonlight makes it very easy for straight and black audiences to respond to it by removing actual gay sex from the equation. But I also think this is why audiences outside of the mainstream upscale Hollywood liberal bubble are laughing at the movie, as a writer posted in Vulture last week in a post called The Sad Surreal Experience of Seeing an Audience Laugh at Moonlight. The writer posted about the differences of seeing the movie at a press screening and then seeing it with a paying audience at the Brooklyn Academy of Music on a packed Friday night, noting that the audience was rejecting scenes and laughing at them in the way the scenes portrayed sexuality. And I don't think the audience is wrong in the way the writer takes them to task. Their reaction is real. And if that's sad and surreal to you, then I think you might be a bit out of touch. I think that audience is more hip and modern than the sentimental narrative wants us to believe. The movie approaches everything way too evasively and with such solemnity that I'm not surprised pain audiences are giggling at the self-seriousness of the movie and its lack of being upfront about gay shit. In the beach scene involving the teens Chiron and Kevin, the movie slows down and starts talking poetically. I cry so much I'll turn into drops, Chiron says at one point. 
There's half a kiss, no tongue, no skin, no flesh, no reciprocating. No matter how damaged and passive Chiron might be, this would be the film's opportunity for him and the movie to explode with awkward passion, let all the pent-up feelings finally out in the secret moment. And maybe this would scare Kevin, who we have assumed is straight up until now, and would have laid the groundwork for the severe beating that happens later, which still, after two viewings, makes absolutely no dramatic sense to me at all, except that the movie just wants it to happen. When we finally meet Chiron as a man in the third section, and it's ten years later, and he's a somewhat successful drug dealer, and he's almost as mute and sullen and inexpressive as he was when we last saw him, I kept thinking, wouldn't it have been a more progressive view that Chiron had defeated his victimization, and this big and beautiful black guy could have easily found so much physical intimacy and affection, and maybe even love on the down low, maybe dissatisfied, maybe unhappy, but that would have been a dramatic progression. Instead, he is just a man-child who has not had sex since that hand job, and Moonlight wants us to believe that the most chaste hand job in the history of movies stunted this stud into celibacy. If the boys had given each other blowjobs, I doubt the movie would have been as wildly acclaimed. Obviously, Chiron still gives meaning to that shoreline encounter from a decade ago, and I guess that's the real romance of the movie, Chiron, the romantic victim. But maybe if he had a boyfriend, if maybe he had a semblance of a sexual life, maybe if he was defiant and a fighter, um, the one moment the teenage Chiron takes action and commits an act of violence, the movie suggests the Chiron I wanted to see more of as a moviegoer. And all of this could have deepened the drama. And then we could have found out that he's still obsessed with Kevin, and that's why he drives all the way from Atlanta to Miami 10 years later to see him. I would have found that profoundly more moving than the mute, childlike Chiron, who can barely even tap into his emotions. And I found the movie set up as drama, and not as sociology, somewhat regressive. But I believe audiences and straight critics prefer it this way, and that Chiron remaining a VIP, victim in pain, is what sells the movie to them. Maybe it's telling that the lone negative Moonlight review is from the um, gay black critic Armand White, uh, though both Wesley Morris and Hilton Owls loved it. Maybe if Chiron had stepped up but was still wounded by what happened to him, that would have made so much more dramatic sense, even if this is not what always happens in the real world. But Chiron, as a flawed but strong black queer male, would have destroyed the ideological victim fantasy of it all, even if it aided in the drama. And let's face it, it would have been a harder sell in our everyone's a victim culture. You can kind of see Chiron's repression when he teases one of his boy dealers working for him about money. You can imbue this ragging as a sexual tease on Chiron's part, though the movie dares not go there. And because of these evasions, the movie doesn't seem like a gay man's journey to anywhere. And this seriously hampers part three of the triptych, because what happened in episode two doesn't carry the weight of what starts happening in episode three. The pieces fit better in part one and into part two. The big scene in the restaurant near the end of Act 3 feels like it's from a play, fake and stagey, and yes, from a gay playwright. And yet the actors and the director sell it, even though the vulture writer noted that the Brooklyn audience watching the scene reacted to it as if it was watching a sitcom. Sexy Chiron as a smart man with desires would easily, with his body and looks, have gotten a lot of action anywhere he went. But the movie wants to keep him a neutered angel boy man who cries about his mom and still thinks of a hand job he got from Kevin 10 years ago. That's a literary conceit, the hand job that cannot be forgotten. 
That the adult Chiron would not be on the DL and satisfying his desires is also a literary fantasy, but that's part of the sullenness of the movie and underlines the basic conservativeness of the movie as well, proud of its values and what it represents. An Oprah movie, perhaps. When it comes to sex, it feels like the movie is pulling punches, and it becomes slightly maddening. The wet dream is just a brief montage of Kevin smoking a cigarette. Maybe if it was the younger Kevin, it would make more sense, but since Chiron hasn't even seen the older Kevin at this point, you wonder who he's dreaming about. Audiences, according to the Vulture piece, laughed at this sequence, too. As a dramatist, and especially as a gay man, something feels off to me, and I'm not sure why more gay men aren't talking about these omissions and the chastity of its ending, where Chiron goes back to Kevin's house after the restaurant scene, and then nothing happens. Forget sex. What about a kiss? But no, instead of sex, we get a hug. When asked about this, Barry Jenkins has said that what Chiron needs at this point is affection more than sex. Well, the question is, can he have both? And aren't the two intertwined? Jenkins' answer is a straight man's answer, not a gay man's answer, and that's why the movie feels emotionally lopsided. Certainly, Moonlight is a Black Lives Matter movie, and the black bodies of the adult Chiron and the kindly, saintly drug dealer Juan, who took care of him as a child, seem now in this moment as a defiant rebuke to the endless parade of lifeless, murdered bodies of black men we have been privy to in the media in shooting after shooting after shooting. Seeing so many black men slaughtered this year makes one understand the importance that is being placed on Moonlight's fragile shoulders. And part of the rapturous response the movie has received from the mainstream media is that it portrays a different kind of black man that we haven't seen in movies. And this is a new thing and something to be celebrated. But really, is replacing the thug with the oversensitive and victimized man-boy a sign of progress? The movie seems created to be idealized by our victim culture. Chiron's not messy, he's not difficult, he's presented as squeamish about gay sex as much as perhaps the straight men in the audience are. The movie is almost overly thoughtful and solemn about drugs, about crime, sex, being gay, and it embraces shame and guilt as primary motivators. It's almost delicately miserableist, but the rarity of its main character gives the film somewhat of a free pass, allowing people to overrate it. We are in a strange moment where Moonlight becomes something that it's not, a masterpiece. It's a story that needs to be heard, of course, no doubt, and yet the overprotectiveness of the reaction to Moonlight can be seen, of course, no doubt, as condescending as well. When TV creator and showrunner Shonda Rhimes was accused a year or so ago by a viewer complaining that there was too much gay sex on her TV shows, Rhimes shot back, wagging her finger, that what the viewer was watching was not gay sex, but just sex. And some of us scratched our heads. It is? As a gay man who is not neutered by his homosexuality, when I look for pornography online, I'm not typing in sex. I'm typing in gay XXX, gay website or gay tube or whatever. I understand what Shonda means, of course, but this notion that all sex is the same and we shouldn't label it as being different is a nice PC idea that in reality serves no progressive function whatsoever. It's just victim attitude socialism. King Cobra has, for a mainstream indie, a lot of simulated gay sex in it and with heterosexual actors, James Franco, Christian Slater, going for it. King Cobra is a movie where all the main characters are gay and involved in a narrative that is blessedly free of ideology and gay suffering. The suffering in King Cobra is caused by capitalism, and being gay for the most part is not the point or part of the pain. The gay men in King Cobra have already worked through their gayness, their issues. They have other issues and problems to deal with. 
both Moonlight and King Cobra are progressive movies in terms that they both are about things we rarely see depicted in mainstream American indie films. And Barry Jenkins proves in only his second movie that he has an eye for composition, texture, and rhythm, and knows mostly what to do with the camera. I'm not totally convinced Justin Kelly, um, and uh, King Cobra is his second movie as well, is an artist yet, but he knows how to shape scenes somewhat. And even when the movie goes to hell in its last few minutes, he's been attempting something daring and new. There is no way I can make the case that King Cobra is a better movie than Moonlight, and yet on a kind of personal, aesthetic, emotional level, I prefer it, because in its own casual, tossed-off way, it has no problems visualizing complicated reserves of gay male desire, regardless of who or what the movie is about. Juxtaposing King Cobra with Moonlight reveals that white privilege makes it easier for the guys in King Cobra to effortlessly connect and publicly exploit their sexuality and bodies, And yet, and I think this is key, all the sex scenes in King Cobra don't take place on porn sets in front of the camera, but they are private scenes among the characters that reveal their desires and motivations, meaning the gay sex in King Cobra is not dictated by the porn milieu it takes place in. And this is why the movie seems a step ahead of Moonlight. It is the summer of 2005, and Sean Lockhart, a broke, openly gay teenager from San Diego, has become lured to the production offices of Cobra Video looking for some quick cash. And suddenly, Brent Corrigan, Lockhart's screen name, became a gay porn internet superstar at the age of 18, though actually it was 17. But shh, don't tell anyone. Sean didn't. In a number of clips that capitalize on his boyish good looks and an appealing and wholesome boy-next-door quality, it wasn't particularly well in out, but he wasn't Faye, and he wasn't trying to butch it up. He was just the handsome dude in school that you had a secret crush on, and he was incredibly enthusiastic in his sex scenes where he was mostly a bottom. Corrigan became the poster boy for Twink. Like a true star, the videos he made were hot because of him. Not the editing, not the kind of sex being had, not the hotness of his co-stars. Corrigan could have been doing a crossword naked, and guys would have wanted to watch him. Garrett Clayton has thicker features than Brent, but he's more movie star handsome, and he goes for the role in raw and unexpected ways, simulating being fucked by other dudes and being comfortable enough in the role that he completely passes muster. He's good in it. And yet, Clayton has said he doesn't want to talk about his own sexuality when promoting King Cobra, which follows the Hollywood rule book that tells its young actors with leading man looks not to come out if they want to keep working. This is proud liberal Hollywood's reality in the moment, blinded, of course, by capitalism. The hypocrisy is breathtaking. Glad, please take note. The guy who discovers Brent is Stephen, played by Christian Slater, and James Franco plays Joe, the quote-unquote head of a rival company, Viper Boys, who wants to sign Corrigan after Brent leaves Cobra when he finds out how much money Stephen is making off of him and refusing to share in the profits. And I put head of company in quotation marks since Joe's and Stephen's companies are just themselves working on their laptops out of their homes. Stephen is just shooting porn in his upper middle class suburban Pennsylvania track house and then uploading it to his Cobra video site and selling it, as is Joe with his site Viper Boys. This is the moment when porn culture and the Internet collided and there was briefly real money to be made. Stephen is closeted to his sister, but doesn't care. It just makes his life easier, and he moves on, reveling in his job as pornographer. He delivers a monologue to Brent about being outed in college, but Slater delivers it warily, almost flippantly, as if being outed was what opened his life up to all the lovely boys he films and fucks. Joe is involved with the lead porn star on his site, Harlow, played by Keegan Allen. 
And James Franco as Joe is as raunchy and fiercely committed as ever, especially in his two very brief sex scenes with Harlow. And though Franco leans toward comic effect and parody in the sex scenes, this is the best performance he's given in what seems like forever. And the same must be said for Christian Slater as well, who plays Stephen as tired romantic, a straight-acting guy brought down by his own anxieties over aging and punishing Brent, who he has become angrily obsessed with. The weakest parts of the movie involve the two women who are seen in about only four or five scenes, Sean's mom, played by Alicia Silverstone, and Slater's sister, played by Molly Ringwald. The director gets the narrative going quickly. It's deftly laid out, and the movie is unfussy and neutral, with a dark tone and surprisingly elegant look at times, especially for a $1 million budget. And it feels like a queer cinema anomaly in that it doesn't camp things up, though sometimes it comes close. It's post-gay in the fact that it's not about the closet or AIDS or bullying or gay rights or gay marriage or any kind of political leaning. If the movie flirts with a bitchy camp aesthetic, it has been folded into the true crime narrative of it all. The movie is soapy, not campy, and sometimes King Cobra likes to blur those lines. The movie is also never erotic, though depending on how attractive you find some of the performers, you might find the nudity and fake fucking titillating, even though the sex sometimes borders on the cartoonish. And there is early on an inelegant montage of Corrigan's brief rise, unfortunately paired with Scissor Sisters' camp disco classic filthy gorgeous played over it to kind of jazz everything up when it doesn't need to most of the music cues are jarring the montage is explicit and quick and one wishes that the movie had the nerve of a boogie nights in taking things a little bit more slowly and seriously that kelly might have at least taken the time and played the scenes out so they might develop more tension and rhythm he hasn't found a way to fully trust the material or to let the sex scenes play out in a dramatic way And sometimes Kelly veers toward pretension by connecting a parallel thematic scheme between the two older men, Slater and Franco, who never meet in the movie, involving both of them being jealous of their younger lovers as a motivating force. Meh, whatever. That's just not King Cobra style. It's a softcore exploitation film, sleazy and energetic, and it wants to be fun, and it wants to be trashy, and it's not afraid to be tacky. And you are reminded sometimes that artlessness is an aesthetic, too. And I like this a lot. The best scenes in the movie involve gay men talking about business and money and negotiations and the power games they enact on each other, and not about how they are so shut down by the ideology of being gay and their attendant suffering and misery. The most compelling scene in King Cobra is a long take in a sushi bar with three of the leads discussing business, and it's done in a very, very slow zoom and full of behavioral details and funny asides and digressions that suggest the movie King Cobra could have been if only the rest of the movie had taken the scene as its main cue. And the problem is that King Cobra is only 90 minutes long in its bare-bones retelling of this somewhat sordid crime. And that is not enough time to cram in all the particulars, including who these people were before the crime and what happened to them afterward. And it reveals, as so many American movies do now, compared to the way TV storytelling works, that the cinematic format can be and is now a major limitation. Moonlight is actually perfectly suited for the movie format and not as a serialized experience. It has been worked out to fill the contours of the theatrical experience. You can easily watch King Cobra on TV, perhaps it benefits from VOD, while Moonlight should be seen in a theater. 
The lack of a real budget and a shortened running time alters the meaning of the King Cobra story, and because of this, the movie finally descends into camp. King Cobra could probably have worked better as a much longer miniseries because in its movie format, it just has to race along breathlessly to get in all the info, and because of this, it lacks nuance. It's all shortcuts, and it resorts to using montage to pump up emotional effects in what should be instead a series of scenes. And the movie is also completely eerily underpopulated, as are so many indies now, because of economic reasons. It just hits the basic beats of the story, and the murder happens so suddenly that it's as much of a surprise to its victim as it is to us. There's a scene that should resonate, where Brent has dinner with a porn star it seemed way earlier in the picture that he was falling in love with, and then just disappeared. And we're wondering, why is Brent sitting across from this guy now? Where did all of the scenes leading to this dinner end up? There seems to be 40 minutes missing between every scene in King Cobra, which is frustrating because it reminds you why this is such compelling material for a gay-themed movie. And so, I can't recommend King Cobra, and yet I can't quite work up recommending Moonlight either. Moonlight has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, and King Cobra has a 50%, and the truth for each movie lies somewhere in the middle. They're not as good or as bad as critics say. I'm never going to make the case that King Cobra is a better movie than Moonlight. Moonlight is a labor of love. King Cobra decidedly isn't. Yet I kind of prefer King Cobra because it's the rare post-gay film where no one is tortured about being gay, no one is bullied, no one is ashamed, no one has passionate coming out scenes with their parents, there are no tears, there is no gay shame or suffering. And isn't this, in our new acceptance of gay lives and equality, the more progressive path? After a wild and unpredictable childhood, your future self must deal with your closeted father, who dies from AIDS in 1983, as well as the abuse he inflicted upon you, and he is one of the first casualties in the looming horror of the disease and the deaths of three of your siblings at ages that are way too young, and later on the mother who becomes a Christian therapist and motivational speaker who lectures on behalf of James Dobson's focus on the family about overcoming homosexuality. And you're a rising actress in the 1990s, and you have been working since you were a teenager on soaps, then moving into parts on primetime shows and made-for-TV movies. And then you're in high-end cable movies and well-reviewed indies. And by this point in the mid-90s, it was still possible to get noticed for a performance in an indie movie, which will lead to starring roles in mainstream movies. And you have noticeable bits in Milk Money and The Juror, 
And suddenly in mid-1997, Anne Heche has supporting parts in three big films alongside Johnny Depp and Al Pacino in Donnie Brasco, Dustin Hoffman and Robert De Niro in Wag the Dog, Tommy Lee Jones in Volcano, as well as having a brief part in the teen thriller I Know What You Did Last Summer, whose leading men were, of course, Freddie Prinze Jr. and Ryan Felipe. Mm. A very heady year leads to her beating out the two biggest female stars of the moment, Nicole Kidman and Sandra Bullock, to co-star with Harrison Ford in a large-scale romantic adventure called Six Days, Seven Nights, and directed by Ivan Reitman. And yet the day after she has been cast in the film, the day after she reached this pinnacle, her same-sex relationship with Ellen DeGeneres becomes public. Even though Hayes had only had relationships and affairs with men, including Steve Martin and Fleetwood Max Lindsay Buckingham, something happened when she met Ellen at the Vanity Fair Oscar party that year, and she flipped for a while, and then after a while she flipped back to men and has stayed there since. And yet there is in the narrative of Anne Hayes the idea that this damaged her career, that a same-sex romance could upend a career in, of all places, Hollywood. Mid-April, Hayes brings Ellen to the premiere of Volcano and causes the biggest celebrity controversy of the year after being told by her handlers that if she did this, she would not have a career anymore. What the narrative said was the first openly gay actress stars in a big-budget romantic adventure, and the notion is they would not have cast her if she had been out before the deal was completed. This was 16 years ago. And where we have come to in the culture is so much more progressive for the LGBTQ community. And yet in Hollywood, it might as well be 1998 all over again. Actually, gay characters were much more visible in movies in 1998 than they are now. You have to go to TV, of course. Um, and um, only three American movies I've seen this year have gay people at their center. Moonlight and King Cobra, which I discussed earlier, and um, Chris Kelly's Other People starring Jesse Plemons. Hayes' agents and managers warned her, telling her that this would destroy her career as a leading lady, and she will never get the big roles she's heading for ever again. And perhaps this happened, except for a role as Vince Vaughn's love interest in Return to Paradise. She never had that kind of role again in movies, which says nothing about Anne Hayes and everything about the way the business works. Hollywood prides itself on being so liberal, but it is actually a very conservative company town with strict rules about how to express yourself. And I guess you either find a space that is tolerable for yourself and that you can live with, or you don't. Hayes fired her team and hired Ellen's team. And later in that April of 1997, Hayes and Ellen go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner together. And then later that month, they officially announced their relationship to the world on Oprah. The relationship didn't last, and this is detailed most fascinatingly in Anne's memoir that she published in 2001 called Call Me Crazy. So what did Anne Hayes do after Ellen and her career as a leading actress imploded? Well, she got married to a man. She had kids. She did theater. She did a lot of movies as a supporting actress. You may have heard of, or maybe not, among them Birth and John Q and Cedar Rapids. But mostly she did a lot of TV. The work ethic was... Um, is amazing. She has continuously worked as an actress in TV for almost 30 years since those first soaps, from Ally McBeal to Everwood to Nip Tuck to the series she starred in Men in Trees for two seasons, to HBO's Hung, to Save Me, to Quantico, to Dig, and now to the new sci-fi series Aftermath, which she stars in with her handsome partner in real life, James Tupper. And it's about a family that from minute one in the pilot is battling the apocalypse that has begun on Earth and which we will be talking about later in the podcast.
Gay in Hollywood is easier on actresses than actors, I believe. Flirting with bisexuality as a young actress or a pop star is sexy and titillating. But men can't do this. And if so, only in a wink-wink comic style or being seriously an evasive cock tease a la Nick Jonas. I've known gay actors who have a certain look. They are not character actors. They are leading man actors. And that might mean unusually handsome. And because of this, they are closeted. And when I say a certain look, casting a digital series I shot last summer, I completely saw firsthand the differences between the types we were looking for in certain roles and the types we were looking for in other roles. All types need not apply for certain roles. Young gay actors with leading man looks usually do not come out in Hollywood. And when they do, they realize rather swiftly where they are regulated to, as anyone from Wentworth Miller to Rupert Everett will tell you. If you're a character actor or a comic actor, chances are much better for you. No one cares. Why don't leading man actors come out? Well, it's the money, stupid. It's a business decision. The thinking among them goes, if you're telling me that I need to be open about who I bang for some obscure moral ideological purpose instead of maybe being able to make a living, even a fortune, if I don't reveal it, what do you think I am, a moron? I said something that pissed off a lot of people a few years ago about the movie version of Fifty Shades of Grey when some women were voting for Matt Bomer to star as Christian Grey without, I thought shockingly, any of them knowing he was openly gay and married to a man. And on Twitter posts, um, this was at a point where I was uh, delusional and invested in writing that script. I basically said the studio, the corporation making the movie, will never cast an openly gay man in the lead for that film. And I also didn't think women would necessarily buy into the fantasy of the film with that particular leading man. I was considered a self-hating homo for pointing out the reality of the business to people. E.L. James told me she just didn't think Bomer was the right actor for the role. And Bomer's husband called my agent and yelled at him about me. And I never said gay actors can't play straight roles, and they do all the time, listeners, and they are usually closeted or character actors. Just that a Hollywood company is not going to allow that to happen in order to protect their investment. The thinking in Hollywood is that homosexuality harms the bottom line, meaning Hollywood isn't filled with homophobes. It's just about what makes money. Anne Heche was not gay, but fluid in that moment, and yet the perception of gayness is what moved her career in one direction rather than the other. So, Anne, when you were cast in Six Days, Seven Nights, which it should be noted uh, was a sizable global hit, grossing in $1998, something like $180 million, you were considered a straight actress, and then it shifted, and you were considered a gay actress, and this was suddenly a problem. I know that the director, Ivan Reitman, when this was announced, told a reporter, quote, I think it will harm the movie's reception and it makes me nervous, unquote, though he later retracted this. Harrison Ford, you said, was always supportive and didn't care. You're told by the people managing you that you're not going to get the jobs you want because you are in this relationship with Ellen. It has now been 18 years since this went down. And now in 2016, looking back at the madness of it all, how do you view it now? How do you feel about it now? I mean, I read your memoir, which was published in 2001, and you seem to be in a pretty good place at the end of that memoir when you said you had been crazy for 31 years and now you were not now in 2016, as a woman of a certain age, looking back at that younger woman and what happened to her, what do you think not only about that younger woman, but also what happened in that moment? What is your takeaway with 17, 18 years of hindsight? 
There are so many things that are flooding into my brain. To answer your specific question um, about the moment of six days, seven nights, falling in love with Ellen, the reaction, I will say that I never would have gotten six days, seven nights if Harrison Ford did not say, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Interesting. And he called me. I remember picking up the phone uh, in our home in the kitchen, and he said, Ann, this is Harrison Ford. And I said, well, I'll be. Hi, Harrison. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry all of this nonsense is going on. And he said, well, I wouldn't be calling if I would do this movie with anybody else. Were there then any weird vibes on the set of Six Days, Seven Nights? Because you had been cast, as you said before, the relationship was announced and everyone assumed you were straight. Now you suddenly weren't. Did you notice any kind of shifts in the production or any shifts of feeling from Ivan Reitman, the director? Well, to say it's interesting to talk about because I don't think people have ever been um, – I don't know what the what the word to describe you talking to me about this is, brave enough to ask me maybe, sensitive enough to ask me about this time in my life as bluntly as, as you are asking. It's not that I've been um, unwilling to talk about it. It's that no one has ever opened the door to actually observe the reality of, of what happened at that time. And the the range, as you said, we are here to talk about feelings, the range of emotion that I've had from devastated to uh, elated to um, feeling that what I did was important to feeling that what I did was absurd, <laughs> the range is there. It's very important for me to recognize that I probably could have taken advice a little bit better, although, as I have been described by some, I was like a wild animal left in a cage for a while and then set free on Hollywood. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I had no idea who to trust, how to trust them, what it was, as you spoke briefly Mm -hmm. about my background. I didn't have – I didn't even understand what it was to be a person who – who knew that if somebody was talking mm-hmm. to me that I could I could absorb it and learn from it and trust it. Right. I had none of that. So my – and it, again, becomes layered and I don't uh, want to ramble, but part of the – part of the – part of what struck me so about Ellen was to me her representation of truth. Because I had been so buried – in so many lies that I determined were the reason my family fell apart, died, was homeless. <laughs> like What I equated that with was lying. If somebody just told the truth, then for gosh sakes, my life would have been better. So I set about to do that. Well, in doing so, I still didn't have any boundaries. I didn't understand that you don't blather all over the place. I didn't know. All I knew was that this, this could save me. If I don't lie to anybody. (laughs) So the notion that not only was this woman who, by the way, I did see across a crowded room. I had no idea who she was. She was wearing a blue suit and emanating like she was like a shining light. I had never before seen when I turned to ask who that was. People literally laughed at me. It was the moment she was coming out on TV. I didn't watch TV. I didn't grow up with TV. It's funny that my career is TV and movies because I, Star Wars was my first movie. And by the way, I told that to Harrison Ford, and he nearly fell off the chair and said, don't ever tell me how old I am again. 
Um, <laughs> but then he ended up writing it into the movie because he cared so much about um, my our truth as a couple in that movie, and I think it it, it comes across. Mm-hmm. Um, but that and why I'm talking about truth is because when I saw her shining light, when I understood that she was a woman who was coming out on television, when she laughed at me and said, are you kidding? You've never seen the Ellen show. <laughs> no. Are you kidding? Oprah was just on my show. I was like, I didn't know. Um, I think partly my innocence and in seeing her in a new light was important and interesting for her because she got to be seen. It never occurred to me for one second. She asked me to leave the Vanity Fair party, and 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 I said, "Well, I'll go with you to the to the. Let's go. Where are we going?" And she said, "Well, go here, but don't walk. That you cannot be seen beside me." And I said, "What on earth are you talking about?" She said, "You don't understand. You do not understand. Everybody wants to know who I'm dating right now, but you don't understand. Coming out in Hollywood now." What is going to happen to you? And I said, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. It would never even occur to me to step aside from you. I don't care if this is for now. I don't care if this is forever. But I will never, ever listen to one more person tell anybody who is gay that they are not able to stand tall and with anybody they want. So, did I notice that something odd was happening when they called me in and told me I was not going to get six days, seven nights? Did I notice that something was odd when I was ushered out the back of the volcano premiere before it even ended so that I didn't go to the after party with Ellen? Did I notice? You bet. And every day I shot that movie, I was reminded every single second, every single moment of that film, I was reminded that I had done and made a decision that they did not approve of. Well, so ultimately, (laughs) when we look back at this, it did uh, put the career on a different path. It did. It did. I mean, I didn't do a studio movie. I was not, and and this is, again, as you say, Hollywood, it's not Hollywood that's homophobic. It's the bottom line is money. I, and this is where I talk about advice. I could have listened differently, but what I heard was, you're not allowed to show up with another woman and make people think you're gay. (laughs) That isn't necessarily what I was, what they were saying. They might have been saying, if I could have heard it, if you show up with that woman and make people think that you're gay, we're going to make less money. So don't do it or we'll fire you from your studio gig. And they did. (laughs) You know, they did. And for 10 years, I did not do a studio film. Um, It was Miguel Arteta. Honestly, um, it was... (laughs) I was in a, I was in a Fox deal when Six Days Seven Nights was made. I was in a Fox deal, three picture deal, and I and Volcano was a Fox movie, and um, I was uh, I was removed from my from my position. <laughs> and then it took so then ten years later, um, and I auditioned. By the way, I started auditioning for things. You have I would put myself on tape when I did Birth. Nobody wanted nobody wanted anything to do with me for whatever for whatever reason. And I think that is an interesting um, reality that 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 happened. Um, but then when uh, Cedar Rapids came along. 
I said, I got to, I just want to go. I just, can I audition for it at least? And Miguel, thank God, had seen me on Broadway and said, yeah, um, she can come in and, and read. And that was the first studio film I did in 10 years. Are you still surprised that we are still where we are at in this town, in this moment? I am. I am. Because as you talked about, it's... It's the perception of the person, just like you said when you were casting your digital yeah. series. You even said, is if, if Fifty Shades of Grey, if you hire an openly gay man who is married to another man, will women be able to dive into the fantasy? I think, I think that's exactly what, if I could whittle down without any emotion around it, what they were wondering in Six Days, Seven Nights, that would be it. Can men dive into the fantasy with her when her when her sexuality is so um, uh, being presented so vocally and publicly um, to b- b- another woman? And I, I think that you know there is some validity to that, which I understand. But I, I noticed a double standard with actors versus actresses having same-sex flings. I mean, there's very little chatter about Kristen Stewart. Uh, her affair with St. Vincent that she's having right now. And Lindsay Lohan's relationship with Samantha Ronson didn't really harm her career. I mean, she did other things that harmed her career, but but not that. But why do I think if Rob Pattinson showed up on the red carpet with a new boyfriend he was having a bisexual fling with, or Chris Hemsworth did the same, that there would be a lot more objection and ridicule and rejection? I mean, I think women can always talk about being bisexual or being attracted to other women or even fake making out with other women or kissing other women publicly, and yet men can't unless it is kind of comic. And do you think this is true? And if so, why the double standard and why the lack of equality here in a way? I don't think there is a double standard. What other women do you think have come along and they're openly gay women and they're leads of films? True. Tell me. N- Who? N- none. None. <laughs> none. True. That's true. And same with men. None. No. They, that's not where people, they have, it has not changed for me. At all. I mean, Ellen's new girlfriend, Portia. I, I don't know what happened to Portia. I can only imagine because I was in a relationship with a woman she's in a relationship with. So I have some ideas about what happened that has nothing to do with Hollywood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a different That's a different uh, part of whatever is going on in her life. Uh, but she was a lead on television shows and a celebrated actress. And I... I haven't seen her um, career exploding. Yeah, um, true, true. Ellen Page. Mm-hmm, right, yes. Ellen Page was poised. I mean, and dare I compare true. myself. True, We, I, it's a, It was a similar career journey mm-hmm. up, Juno, ba, 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 all of a sudden, and now she's gay. Guess what? She's doing a... a <laughs> Is she doing a podcast? I think she is actually. Right, right. <laughs> On, and that's not to say of that's course. not where her career. That's not a, 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 one of the things that she wanted to do in her life. But she's not. She is no longer the lead of studio films. You know, I'm shocked, and I guess I'm not shocked because I've been attacked by the gay media as well. That um, since you didn't conform to the gay media's narrative about being gay, that I sensed a hostility aimed at you from the gay. media media when you were promoting your book in 2001. And I remember so clearly reading that big interview you did in The Advocate. 
and it almost seemed like you were being accused as being some kind of traitor to the cause. And I really thought, okay, so this is where we are. This is the line in the sand the game media has drawn. <laughs> and uh, believe me, I've been on that sand too. But, uh, I've been on one yeah. side of that line too for yeah. cer- having certain opinions about the gay sure. community. And for some reason, it's even worse because I'm a gay man. But do you remember feeling this at all? Oh, yes. Oh, I, I, I felt like I was ostracized. I mean, I... You know, again, my ability to either hone what I was saying in a more appropriate way, uh, sure, I could have learned, I could have been better, I could have been more eloquent, but I wasn't. Um, the truth to me was, again, the thing that I felt necessary to explore. When I when we did the March on Washington and I stood in front of millions of people, it was an unbelievable moment in my life. And when you... When I look at the things that I've stood up for in my life and been a part of, I have such a celebration in my heart. So that balances, that's just to go back and say, that that to me is what balances my understanding of why that happened with me as an actress. It it they it all it all is about the same thing that I'm about in my life. And what has guided me to being here and what, what I really feel is my, is my, is my, uh, is my win, really, my life. When I said, please come out, please, as I said, please come out because there's nobody who understands more than me that we are in the dark about sexuality. I worked on a soap opera for years. There were maybe ten, maybe the entire writing staff, not to expose, please don't go looking back. I'm, I'm not meaning to expose anybody here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the producers, I had the crew, a crew of the most talented, most wonderful people who helped guide me through my life. None of them would come out to me. Mm-hmm. Yep. They lived in privacy and secrecy. And I'm... I'm the first person you should be able to tell. I have no judgment about anything. I'm like, go truth, baby. You just tell me who you are and I will celebrate it and help you get to wherever you want to be. If I can help, I'll do it. If I can love you through it, I'll do it. If I can put my arms around you and tell you you're okay, I'll do it. That's me. That's Anne. And still the shame that I've witnessed in so many people. Please come out. Please come out. Please come out. I thought people would think it was interesting. I thought people would think it would. it was a relief to say I wasn't born this way. When I first said that, <laughs> when I first said, I, cho- I choose. It's the most incredible thing. You can choose who you want to love. That ended my support. <laughs> and, and that is one of the biggest curiosities if I were to if I were if I were to do an essay in school if I were to ever be lucky enough to go to to have gone to college which I'm not uh, which I didn't uh, but if I were to do a thesis <laughs> I think it would be on that empowering a consciousness to go someplace outside of the safety zone has been where I think I've been teetering every time I do an interview. Honestly, that's that's where I feel like I am with my life. If people were like doing, you know, that Chinese jump rope, which is two jump ropes. 
mm-hmm. going, and you're like always trying to go in, and it's not just one. That's me. I'm like, do I go into it? Sometimes I get into the comfort zone, and I can jump, and I can jump, and I can jump, and people are like, okay, we'll go with it. But often I'm I'm tipping into a place that feels a bit unsafe for people to talk about. As someone who has been a part of movies for the last 20 years or so, I mean, what do you think has happened to movies? I mean, I can't imagine this, that in this moment there are young actresses like yourself who in the mid to late 90s could have had today the opportunities you had. You know, the fame is different, the money is different, the budgets are different. You know, the studio movies you made during that era you were coming of age in are not being made anymore and certainly not as lavishly and not for the same price. I mean, The Juror cost $45 million to make... (laughs) Donnie Brasco cost $35 million. Six Days, Seven Nights cost $70 million. I know what you did last summer cost $20 million. I mean, the mind kind of reels now. Even Jonathan Glazer's birth from 2004 cost $20 million to make. And you give a great performance in that movie for anyone who has not seen it. Gus Van Sant's remake of Psycho cost $60 million in 1998. That's $60 million for a Psycho remake. We are now in a completely different movie era for numerous reasons that we talk about on the podcast. What do you think about these kind of films that were character-driven and adult and how they have mostly disappeared from the slates with TV having taken its place, Mm -hmm. but of course, but without the care and expense that went into the making of these film Mm -hmm. productions? Mm -hmm. Have we lost something? I feel like we've lost... I mean, I say this on on sets. It has so much to do with the romance being gone. And there are things, of course, directors have talked about, cinematographers talk about all the loss of film and what, and what that is. But the, the repercussions, the things that people don't necessarily think about, film, it was tangible, first of all. So your senses were, it took, t- it took time, it took care. When you rolled, there, when you would roll film, you were, charged everyone was charged with the energy of saying this is a moment that we are all putting our best foot forward that energy forward that connection that tantalizing all everyone everyone working together in both fear and elation am i doing it right can i do it right oh my god what if i get it wrong there was there we were all trying to achieve something together and then when it was then cut you take the breath relief did i do my job the lighting the designers are going did every that experience that romance that relationship doesn't exist anymore because there is no beginning and end and it's a false uh you know, it's 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 false, and because it's false, when you yell "rolling" or "action," it has less meaning. Well, what does that less meaning do to a set? What yes. is what is the the change in experience? Is it is different? It doesn't mean it's not special or wonderful or what it is, but it is not what it was. There was also. A, a privacy issue for me now with Cruz. Digital roles all the time. It's like you're being yes, watched. True. It's like Big Brother is there on set with you. No, you don't have five. When you used to reload film, 
I mean, I've, I feel like it's like I'm ancient. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but we talk it's about this so all the time on the podcast. Ridiculous, but what the expression of that was when 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 a reel was finished, again there was a celebrate. There was something that was going that everyone focused on, and it was being put into a can, right, and taken to a place to be developed. Yeah. Like, oh my. And then that next experience, but in the release of that, the crew could go outside. Everyone could have a cigarette break. Mm-hmm. You got to let down your guard and your your need to to be as perfect as you could possibly be for everybody else on the set to get that win, to get that take, and everybody could relax. Now, and then you come, and then you build back up. There's no emptying and filling anymore on sets, and I recognize that that is, it's. It's kind of vanilla everything. Mm-hmm. You can't tell a dirty joke anymore because mm-hmm. you might be heard uh, by somebody who's still listening on the reel because they don't ever cut. Right. Somebody said to me, oh, my gosh, somebody came to, 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 to direct. And I am really good about it. I unplug my things. Mm-hmm. I, I walk away. I don't talk in front of camera. I let crew members come and talk to me off set. I do things to make sure that people get breaks as much as I can. Mm-hmm. But then I got a call from a director who came to do an episode of Aftermath, and she's like, I know what kind of girl you are because I heard you on your uh, when you weren't um, shooting. <laughs> oh, you know what kind of girl I am, huh? First of all, that's how you kind of recognize who I am because of the jokes that I tell when when this fake cut is cut. First of all, that's false. Mm-hmm. You know, there were like five different reasons why I was like, I'm not going to like this director. But that was the beginning right. of, uh-oh. But that's the thing. Everybody feels that feels that way. So when we talk about the movies, the care... Nobody wag the dog. I sat around a table for two weeks with David Mamet and Bob De Niro and Dustin Hoffman and Barry Levinson talking about the story. Right. Oh my God. Do you wonder the involvement, the care, the the intense dedication to the glasses that that Dustin was going to wear on his it was a group decision they brought it in we all looked at we again the the senses we were connected before even one second of film was shot we knew each other's bad days and good already what has been lost in in no it's not just rehearsing. Nobody gives a crap if you can rehearse or say a scene. Nobody. So what? Everybody can memorize words. It's not about that. It's about the crafting of the the consciousness, the simplicity of knowing somebody, of allowing yourself to be so comfortable as an artist that you are, that the world that's created is beyond anything that could be just singular. Somebody, somebody's a good actor. That script, that scene was written really well. It's all gone. It's all yes, it gone. <laughs> and now you arrive someplace. I just shot a movie. I am not kidding you. I shot a movie in 15 days. I just got home two days ago. I arrived on Monday afternoon, talked to the wardrobe people Sunday, arrived Monday, got into my costume, and 601... Oh, was on a set on Tuesday morning shooting the movie. Yeah. 
What? Something's lost. The director wasn't even excited because he had done so many of these 15-day movies that by the time he just was like, oh, hi. I'm like, well, excuse me very much. I'm glad I arrived. Is this as much fun as you're going to have the whole time we're shooting? I mean, are you kidding? But there's no connection. So then you're trying to make, I'm trying to make a connection as fast as possible, right? To get back someone's not feeling, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, can people please, hi, 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 man, hi, man. It's like I hand out candy to try to get people to at least connect for one second to imagine that they're doing something special rather than being on a on on the machine ride that they're on because this crew goes to the next movie, the next movie, the next movie. They don't listen. They don't watch a script. They don't care about who's acting. Now, that's not the big studio movies. Obviously, I'm still doing, uh, you know, movie of the week. Right, right, right. <laughs> I'm still doing, like, let's not get. Now, I don't mean to, uh, you know, I'm, I don't mean to take down uh, all the studio pictures because I don't get hired for those still. <laughs> but, but, but if I did, I would have a good time. You can guarantee. There's been a lot of talk about equality in Hollywood and women in Hollywood, and I don't think there's anyone who doesn't agree equal pay for equal work. And yet in other areas in the culture, it's not equality so much that women are demanding, but a kind of overprotectiveness from the reality of the world. Now, of course, this affects every member of Generation Wuss, the millennial generation, in our everyone is a victim culture. But wanting equality and yet demanding overt protection sends a strange message, and I'm not sure everyone is buying it. A couple of things happened this past week. Rolling Stone was found guilty of libel with actual malice in a trial in Richmond, Virginia, about a brutal rape accusation made against a fraternity at the University of Virginia that the magazine published recounting the horrors of rape culture through the eyes of a rape victim, Jackie, that turned out to be completely false, and which further incited the public's hatred for the media promoting something that many people think has been completely overblown, campus rape culture. The Harvard men's soccer team sexually ranked new freshman members of the 2012 women's soccer team in emails they sent to each other four years ago. Among the shocking and hideous things the male soccer players wrote include, quote, she looks like the kind of girl who both likes to dominate and likes to be dominated. Heavens, I'm clutching my pearls. They assigned number rankings and potential sexual positions to the women. Quote, she seems to be very strong, tall, and manly, so I gave her a three because I felt bad, unquote. Of course, there are cruder things said, but nothing that awful. Boys being boys, yes, yes, this happens. Yes, locker room talk does exist. Yes, this happens, and yes, most decidedly with gay men as well. Etc., etc. Oh, what a shame how terrible boys are just so dirty. They only think about sex. The email messages had been publicly archived on a Google group emailing service, Google Groups, and more or less ignored until the Harvard Crimson published the emails last week, causing Harvard's athletic director to overreact since he had to, whether he wanted to or not, because of the disastrous and often wildly misinterpreted Title IX. 
and canceled the remainder of the men's 2016 soccer season, and they were about to win the championships, and banned them from any postseason play. Quote, Harvard Athletics has zero tolerance for this type of behavior, the athletic director said. What behavior? What are we doing? What are we doing to our boys and girls with this kind of punishment and protection? Members of the women's squad knew about the emails and that this had been a thing with the men's soccer team for years, a kind of ritual. And the girls initially brushed it off, saying that, quote, the sad reality is that we know men talk this way in private, and so what? But when the Harvard Crimson highlighted them, oh, good work, Comrade Snowflake, what a fine editorial board you have, Comrade Snowflake, and made them more visible, the girls were embarrassed and freaked out, further victimizing themselves. Does any of this narrative bother anyone? Are there any free speech advocates out there who find this rather chilling? Are we protecting women from a reality that is pretty hard to contain, male lust and the male gaze? And does this punishment fit the supposed crime? Are we overprotecting girls in a kind of neo-Victorian manner, while at the same time demanding equality and punishing men for saying what they want to say with their gender-based aggressiveness? Do we want to start neutering men? If you want to look at last summer's all-female Ghostbusters through the same equality lens that women demand from men, then you should be able to call out the racism and sexism of this new Ghostbusters. If women want equality both ways, it's got to be a two-way street. Can you imagine what would happen if you had a young black actor playing the male equivalent of the Leslie Jones role now in 2016? Do you know the outrage that would cause? The bug-eyed, hysterical black woman fumbling around and screaming about she's scared of all those ghosts compared to the three cool white female scientists had some of us surprised by a black caricature that seemed as dated as Butterfly McQueen and yet still popular enough in the culture to be considered okay for this Ghostbusters reboot, let alone Chris Hemsworth's stupid ditzy secretary or how the female Ghostbusters defeat the main male ghost by aiming their neutron wands at his crotch. Can you imagine the outrage if men had done the same thing to a giant female ghost aimed their neutron wands at her pussy? So the feminist Ghostbusters dripping with misandry is totally considered okay and is not only allowable in our culture, it in fact wants us to applaud it. And if you're a man and reject what the movie's misandry is selling you, then you're considered a sexist misogynist. Hillary Clinton using the gender card pissed off a lot of women I know, especially among millennial women I know. And when the Donald Trump comments about pussy grabbing were leaked, I don't know any women whose minds were changed because the women I knew were offended that they should be offended. And I'm talking about Clinton supporters as well as Trump supporters. And there are many women who reject self-victimized third-wave feminism and want their feminism to be defined as what Camille Paglia calls street-smart Amazonian feminism. The world is a dangerous place. You must learn to defend yourself. You can't be a fool. You have to stay alert. Today, Paglia says, girls are being reared in a precisely contrary fashion, indulged and protected from every evil, and they become helpless victims when confronted by adversity. Paglia believes women are rocketing backwards to the Victorian period with this belief that women are not capable of making decisions on their own. This is not feminism. Feminism for Paglia is achieving independent thought and action, and there will never be equality of the sexes if we think that women are so handicapped they can't look after themselves. 
girls would be far better advised to revert to the brave feminist approach when women were encouraged to fight all their battles and win them. But we live in a society where wolf whistling at a woman is now considered a hate crime in Birmingham. And I would suspect most college campuses as well. So, Anne, first of all, how do you respond to this notion of what seems to be a kind of hypocrisy going on in the culture? Total equality, yet total protection from any kind of adversity. Is that equality? Is this freedom? What's going on in the mix-up of it all? I think I've had a lot of... I think I have a lot of the same questions, too. Who isn't a victim right now? It's so, it's so, everybody's such a pussy. I I mean, really, Mm -hmm. that's, I I can't, who, who isn't put upon? I I don't, this is, it's like, it's unbelievable to me. Where is the power? Where are the balls? I I mean, honestly. Does it make you angry when you see this? It it, it makes me angry, too. And I think it makes a lot of people angry. And I think it's like something that we're reaching a level of not being able to tolerate it anymore. Well, and we can't, not only not tolerate it, it's like, wait, what are we allowed to do? Like, why has our culture, as we evolve, we've evolved into, we, everywhere we go, we're stepping on eggshells. Agreed, yeah. No way to live. And, and you look at the eyes of other people, and they're doing the same. They're doing it, and you're like, oh, my God, no wonder people are looking at their phones all the time because they cannot deal with the fact that they can't be a human being. Yeah. Look at somebody, say something. It's every, everything we do, we offend somebody. I, 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 I don't even know what, where you're supposed to where – you, where do you go? You, where do you go to express yourself in a way that somebody isn't going to use against you? Well, I think – look, I think if you do that, if you want to live a life where you express yourself, um, you kind of uh, – Pick your battles, more or less. The problem is not expressing yourself, but being punished for expressing yourself and for losing jobs for expressing yourself. And when a kind of corporation mentality takes over and dictates what you can and cannot say, that's when we get, it gets a little frightening. Well, listen, not to bring it full circle, but this is exactly what we were talking about in the beginning. Why is it impossible for us to be able to say who we love and then have our jobs? <laughs> now, by law, you can't. But the reality is this is now now everybody's starting to, to put tape over our mouths. And if we don't shut the hell up, then we're going to get fired or stop playing sports or what is going what's happening? It's this the same exact thing is happening. You said how far have we come? Yeah. This this ain't far. Oh, I think it might even be a regression. Uh, well, I mean, I don't even well, know if it's I think it's I think uh, we're going back, but Let's get I was watching two of these girls uh do when um, you know, Trump uh, why talk about Trump, but let's get America to be great. Oh yeah, like we're I mean, why do why is progress going backwards? No. Yeah. What are we doing to each other? You know, this made me think also about um, what I was talking about, about sexism in the industry. And I'm, I am assuming that you have never been raped by a studio executive, as Rose McGowan has stated earlier in the year that she was. Is sexism in the industry, is it at the bottom line based in a kind of ageism and looksism for women? Is that really where it begins? And what is the most insidious aspect of sexism in the industry? Where, where is it at its worst? And how does it express itself? 
I mean, is the whole thing predicated on, uh, again, on, on ageism and, and women having to look a certain way? Um, and is it kind of a business decision? Is it what the audience wants? I mean, sexism and, like we talked about earlier, uh, homophobia is tied into business decisions. Where does it go deeper than that? What, is, what has your, been your, your um, what you've come up against in the business at all in terms of uh, seeing, oh, this is sexist. Oh, yes, sexism is here. Um, well, I will state just a hundred percent. It's absolutely here. It's disgusting. B- personally, how how I was handled is, uh, and I, I mean, I'm I'm actually kind of interested that Rose actually comes out and says, no, but you're not allowed to talk about it. But he, does it go deeper? I think it does. Is it about ageism? Well, why do um, people abuse young people? Why are there coaches at Penn State? You know, why Why do we have um, men abusing younger men in the locker room or in the showers, blah, blah, blah? Uh, what's happening in the Catholic Church? Why is it young boys? And I would equate those a similarity that doesn't have anything to do with Hollywood. It has to do with a position of power Interesting. and a, and a younger, more innocent, more feared, fearful, um, mind that cannot understand how to bridge the gap between what's happening to them and how to express it because of the small position they think they will lose. Okay, the gap isn't about the gap isn't about beauty. The gap that is ageist to me is the, the unformed spirit is used because of because of the inability to comprehend how to give it a voice. And feel safe. And so, yes, is that used in Hollywood? You bet. Yes, is it used when they say, why don't you come on in here and suck my dick in order to get a job? Yes. Is it used, oh, you don't want to make it on the cutting room floor? Yes. Is it, do you want this part in this movie? Yes. Both male and female. Yes. Okay? But that, I would say, is happening in so many different areas in so many different places that people have that gap and it's it's so hard to talk about because it's abuse there's a scene in the movie you made uh, directed by david mckenzie who also made startup in hell or high water and it's from 2009 called spread a movie that you co-starred in with ashton kutcher and i think you're sexy and great in it and ashton is um just kind of sexy and maybe not so great in it. <laughs> in the movie, which is about an immoral young L.A. stud who, who hooks up with an older, rich attorney so he can enjoy the lifestyle and have a place to live in her majestic Hollywood Hills home, um, kind of lets your character down more than once or twice in the movie. It's definitely written and produced from the viewpoint of straight men. It almost feels like an, uh, an attempt at an ironic version of Entourage because our hero is punished in the end instead of being celebrated. 
And there's a scene that feels very wrong. Your character in a desperate desire to keep boy toy Ashton from leaving you, even though your character knows he's fucking younger women, gets vaginal reconstruction surgery. And instead of your character just going to New York for a week to have this done, the script imagines you would have had done this in L.A. and that the Kutcher character would pick you up from the hospital and have a somewhat disgusted conversation with the doctor who performed the surgery about what precautions to take post-surgery while you sit in a wheelchair that Kutcher is pushing and you shyly listen to the conversation Kutcher has with the doctor. It's supposed to be a kind of comic moment, I guess, maybe, but it seemed kind of sour. The whole movie seems kind of sour. And how did you feel about playing that scene? And, and also, have you, have you felt in other movies that there was something distinctly sexist or misogynist that you had to play in certain scenes? Well, for me, two things. I think the movie failed in a lot of different areas. <laughs> oh, of course it did. Yeah, yeah. Not just. No, no. Um, and and there were very there were so many different directions that um, I thought should have been caught by both Ashton and David. And for whatever reason, um, the paths they went down with how to tell that story um, were would were not the choices that I would make. Uh, but I didn't know about that. I knew about what I wanted to do and why I took the role and why I took it was because I wanted to portray a woman that was portrayed in the film um, as like some old hag and he was just using her and for her money. I wanted to portray from my point of view, women who get into a position where they are powerful, they're gorgeous, they spend money, they have money and their weakness Mm -hmm. is so, they are so fragile because I knew the destination that I had to get to. And for me to have vaginal reconstruction, that's that's about as difficult a journey as I had to take for a character in terms of self-loathing. That I that is one of the reasons I did Interesting. it. Interesting. And so I needed to not be a person that you think is that loathsome of themselves in the beginning and that hides and hides and hides and needs and needs and needs so much from such a dick mm-hmm. that she's willing to take a knife take a knife mm-hmm. to her body. Yeah. I know women like that. Oh yeah. I do that's too. why yeah. I played that role. Fascinating. And that's why I sat there like a quiet mouse and listened as this disgusting user prick talked to a man I let cut my body. Kind of connected to that, I wondered how do you feel about being murdered in a movie? How does it feel to be stabbed to death in a movie? How does it feel? How did it feel to play that scene in Psycho that Gus Van Sant directed? Is there something kind of odd and out of body about um, going through this as an actress, or is it just so technical you're only aware of that, or is it personal? Well, that's an interesting. Psycho is a is a Psycho is maybe a uh, a unique uh, uh, experience because we were literally doing the, the right. movie exactly as right. Hitchcock had done. Right, right. So, a very strange project for anyone who wants to see it. It, it was, and, it, and I thought it was wonderful. I mean, mm-hmm. I loved what Vince did. Anyway, because it was so, it was truly technical. You know, he was literally trying to recreate every shot. So the interest in doing it, it was like doing an art project more than it was playing a character. It's like, wait, I have to do my biggest concern about that was not was 
and the murder, it was all, it was all exactly as right. it had been seen. There was nothing personal about yeah, it at all. Right, right. My biggest concern was, can I leave my eye open long enough for him to do the shot right. that Hitchcock couldn't complete and that now we had technically understood camera work enough that he could take and carry the shot the way that he wanted. So I had to leave my eye open longer than Janet Lee. I mean, that was, that's honestly, um, that was that was how personal I made that killing. I think I take most things. I, I think I believe in making things. Oh, here comes the word, as truthful as possible. And in being in a character, it's not just one. It's not just about being in that little character. It's about what the what the whole thing represents to the to the community of people that I'm 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 lucky enough to be talking to in it through the movies that I do or or te- television shows, whatever they are. I know you're a mother, you're in a relationship, you're constantly working. Do you have time to watch TV or movies? And if so, has there been anything you've liked lately? Uh, you wrote in your memoir that you were movie mad as a kid. Um, are you still looking for a fix? Are you still looking for that great movie? Has there been anything you've seen lately? Or have there even been any performances by actresses that have kind of knocked you out lately? Uh no, I do not watch very much television, and um, and I do not watch very many films that are not um, dr- about uh, on a seven-year-old level. <laughs> this is what I come against with every parent know, on now. When you are yeah. so boring. I know it's so boring. No, no. Also, it's... a lot of, of films don't, as we were talking about before, I really like, I've heard the, you know, to talk about the, I think there's a lovers or something that my friend uh, to, told me about, and I, I've, I, I've heard good things. I literally just got finished shooting um, a movie, and when you're shooting, there is literally yes, uh, no time other yeah. than you know you hope that you get to you know kiss your husband or, or or child or girlfriend or partner or whatever it is that you have. You hope that you get to see them for five minutes before you go back to set. Your new show is called Aftermath, and it's on the Sci-Fi Channel, and it reveals the endless nicheness of content that is available to us. There are now what seems like a thousand shows on TV, which is both good and bad for creators and audiences. It's good for creators because people can make increasingly almost any show they want, and bad because the money might not have been as good as it once was. And it's good for audiences because more options are open to them, and yet it's also kind of bad for audiences because more options are open to them. (laughs) Can you tell me about Aftermath and how it came together, uh, what it's about, and how you feel about it? Um, sure. Aftermath came together. It's a sci-fi show um, that came together. They offered um, my husband. My, Are you married to James I'm not, not? married, okay. uh, but I call him my husband, and I know okay. people get confused about that, but I don't want to get married again, and neither does he. So, mm-hmm. But we're together for 10 years, so I call him my husband. Um, he was offered the leading role in this, and it and because the family there's a family unit of five, and we are going to, as as you said, basically confronting the end of the world and what the new world is. To jump to why I did it, um, Karen is one of the most extraordinary characters I've ever been able to play. She's a marine. She's a uh, helicopter pilot. She is one of the most tremendous. Here's what's funny. You always want the character. For me, I love when I play smart characters. I'm like, great, I'm smarter than me. Love it. I love when I get to embrace another part. I, 
I just you had brought up another character that I do. I don't always embrace characters who are bigger than me or better than me or stronger than me. I embrace the characters that I'm supposed to play. But this one is so kick-ass, and I couldn't even understand why I was doing it or agreed to do it. Talk about no money. That was me. You know, I mean, it was really funny. Nobody wanted me to do it. My representation don't. I mean, there was 900 different reasons for me not to take this role. And I will tell you, when I finally watched the pilot, I watched the show. And by the way, I don't think James and I have ever worked as hard ever in our lives. It was a tremendous amount of work to do, 13 episodes. And at the end of it, I said, oh, wow, I get it. I get why I did this. I deserved to have a mother like Karen. And so does everybody. And I got the opportunity to finally play it. I wanted somebody to stand by my side no matter what, to fight the demons and to go hell or high water and sacrifice every single thing that they had in their life for me. And I didn't have it. But boy, oh boy, did I get to play it. And I was elated. I finally, it was like something, it was like, it was like coming out of a tomb for me. Like, Oh my God, that's why I've been acting. <laughs> to get to a place where I could show the kind of mom that I, I wanted for my life. And so I love her. I love her. And that's who I get to be. I get to be that mom for my kids. 